Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Hey, well, it is great to see you uh, today. And if you're brand new here at Rocky Peak, a guest, we want to welcome you. We hope you have a great experience here. You meet God here in a, in a powerful way. We're just kind of praying God will bring us people who are hungry to grow. And so if you're here, brand new, welcome. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at the church at Rocky Peak. And inside your, um, inside your program, there's a message note sheet we use every week for our time of teaching. And so if you're new, you'll, you'll need to know that. You can pull that out and get your Bibles out, get your iPads out, all the deals. And, uh, and we're ready to go. And I see more and more. Every, every week now we got the cool iPad 2s they're even coming out more uh, it's great so I'm just kind of wondering who you're showing my picture to during the service uh, but uh, uh, anyway uh, we're going to be going into our time of, of teaching uh, assuming you are ready to go you guys all ready y'all set all right great let's, let's go in father thank you so much for uh, for this day uh, where we celebrate fathers and and again we celebrate you as the ultimate father God and we, we just sense your fathering of this church that you are leading us as a church into what it means to be true Christ followers who are being transformed to be your true sons and daughters. And, and we love that, God. And we know this weekend service plays such a big part of that as we come week by week and unpack your word and listen to the voice of your spirit, what you're saying to our church. And so today as we come, we talk about the second coming of your son and what it looks like to live in the light of that day, the reality of the next life. We pray you'd meet us in a very profound way and speak to us according to our need, what it means to live this day in light of that day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today. It's it's outside the city of Jerusalem. we're about the year 30 AD, and, and Jesus has been teaching for the last uh, three years throughout the nation, traveling, sharing the message of his movement. And of course, crowds have come, and, and this is the very last time they're going to Jerusalem. Of course, the crowds don't know that. His men don't know that. He knows that. Uh, he's been trying to tell them for the last few months that, that he's going to die, and they just can't really get this in their heads. It's in their minds, Messiah's win, Messiah's uh, take over things. Uh, they've watched him heal the sick. They've watched him raise the dead. They've watched him still the storms and turn water into wine. They've experienced his supernatural power. And so, so in their mind, they're going to Jerusalem. And as you read the text, you get the feeling that they, they really believe that this is a time prophesied in the Old Testament where, where Jesus, the Messiah, will destroy the kingdom of Rome and, and bring in the kingdom of God, this golden era the prophets had prophesied. And, and so Jesus knows that this is what they're thinking, and he knows they don't get it yet, and he's been trying to tell them for several months that it's not going to happen, he's going to die, but they just can't get it, and so he begins to tell them a series of short stories as they approach the city, and then during that last week in the city, to prepare them for how his kingdom is going to unfold, and so we'll talk about those more later today. But today we're continuing on this series that we've been in now for the last few months. It's called Just Do It. It's a series on the book of James. And for those of you who are new, not only I want to welcome you, but bring you up to speed. We're actually in the, in the final days of this series. In fact, we're getting this message today. We have one more message next weekend where we wrap up this series. And then on the July 4th weekend, we're kicking off a brand new series. It's called Choose Wisely. It's a series on the book of Proverbs. It's going to take us through the summer up until the start of our life groups in the fall. So very excited about that. And so you want to make sure that you're, you're here that weekend or if not here, you podcast it or whatever because that first message will lay the foundation for the whole series. But um, anyway, for this series, for those of you who are new, uh, it's, a, it's a letter, we're studying a letter in the New Testament from a man named James. He's one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. 
This was actually the very first document in our New Testament ever written, only written 10 to 15 years after uh, the resurrection. So James uh, b- grew up with Jesus. Jesus was his older brother, uh, but he didn't believe in Jesus, didn't buy in during his life. It was after his death and resurrection when he met Jesus that he realized that what his big brother had claimed was really true, and so he gave his life to him. He becomes one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus, and so he writes this letter to new Christ followers you know, early on, 10 to 15 years after the resurrection, when the, when the movement of Jesus was very young, and everyone's pretty much Jewish at that point in the movement. And so if you've been here in this series, you know that it's a very practical, kind of hard-hitting series. And today we move into the final chapter in chapter 5, and the topic is the second coming of, of Jesus. But again, it's from a very practical standpoint, because what's going on is that, as we'll see today, that many of the believers in this, this new, in, in these churches uh, that James is writing to, they're very poor people. And they live very hard lives. They're, they're kind of day-to-day existence. And one of the challenges is they're being oppressed by the rich in their society. Now, in the ancient world, the ancient Roman Empire, there was a huge disparity usually between the rich and the poor. It wasn't like today where you have a large middle class. There was the rich and there was the very poor. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Now, the reason it was daily bread was because they lived day to day. And, and so often these people, the poor, would be day laborers. Like we will often see in our culture, you'll see men uh, standing on the street corners or in a vacant lot just hoping that someone will hire them for the day. And they, they live off of that money, right? And so at the end of the day, you're supposed to pay them because, because they're very poor and they're living off of that money. And so in the ancient world, there would be these huge uh, landowners, ri- uh, large, uh, uh, rich estates, uh, and they would have servants and they would have slaves, but they'd also, uh, they would hire day laborers. And one of the ways it was that they would oppress the poor is sometimes at the end of the day, they wouldn't pay them. They would withhold their wages. Maybe they wouldn't pay them at all. And what are you going to do if you complain? I mean, you're likely just not going to be hired the next day. Uh, and that society, uh, much like today, the rich would often oppress the poor in court, high-powered lawyers. Sometimes the rich would even resort to violence to extend, to make more money. And so the ancient world was a tough place to be if you were poor. And as we read this letter, you get the feel that many of these Christ followers in the early movement of Jesus were very poor, and they were being oppressed by the injustice, and life was hard. And so James is writing about the second coming, but it's not like theoretical. Now, is there a rapture? Is this? Or what's the time to... He was writing to tell him, hey, as Christ followers, you need to keep your eye on the prize. That this life is not about this life. That it's about the next life. And, and as Christ followers, when you go through hard times, whether you're going through persecution for your faith, whether you're being oppressed by the rich, whether in our context here you have major health issues, you're going through financial issues, there's family issues, whatever the thing is, you're going through hard times. As Christ followers, we need to constantly remember that this life is not about this life. It's about the next life. And we need to focus on the next life and live every day for that day because because this life is short and that life is long and this life is all about that life. So, So he's writing to encourage them that, yeah, I know you're oppressed, but these rich landowners, they are gonna get theirs. Because when Jesus comes back, he is gonna, he's gonna solve the injustice problem on planet Earth. And those who've rebelled and done evil will pay for that. And you as believers, you just need to, to, be, to hang on, to be patient, to focus on that day, and to live your life today so that you are ready when Jesus comes back. So that's kind of the big picture of this 
passage. Now, with that in mind, let's jump in then to James chapter 5 and verse 1. If you have your Bible and there in your note sheet, you have a section called the second coming, what to expect. And so we're going to go through 12 verses, so pretty long passage. So James 5 and verse 1, he says, now listen, you rich people. And as we read on in this text, you get the impression he's really not writing to rich people in the church. Uh, Not that there weren't rich people in the church, but he's really not writing to rich people in the church, that he's writing to these rich landowners uh, that are oppressing the poor. And the reason we get that feel is because there is no call for repentance in this passage. There's no call to, hey, stop doing what you're doing, get right with Jesus, like back in chapter 4. There's really just a sense of judgment coming. And so he says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. So he says, I know you have it really great right now. You're, you're very wealthy. You got a ton of money. You're living lives of luxury. You're living the high life. But when Jesus comes back, you're in trouble. And so he's kind of picturing that day when they're standing there with all their wealth, all their great designer clothes, got the Lamborghini, whatever. You know, you're there and Jesus comes back and you are just, you're just so much money, but it's not going to be a good thing. Like, like right now it seems like a good thing, but it's not going to be a good thing. And so he says, your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes and your gold and silver are corroded because, and their corrosion will testify against you. And there's going to be like evidence against you at the final day. Um, and they will eat your flesh like fire because you've hoarded wealth in the last day. Now he begins to talk about the crimes that the rich have committed and against the poor to make their money. Look, the the wages you failed to pay the workmen, we talked about that, who mowed your fields, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, these people out in the fields that you're abusing, uh, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And so one of the teachings of the Bible is that God is a God of justice and that we all report to him in our life and that, that when he comes back, all wrongs will be turned to right and every injustice ever done will be accounted for one way or another. And so he says that, that you will have to pay for this uh, for, your, for what you've done against the poor. Verse five, he says, you have, re- you have lived your uh, life, you've lived it on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now, this is very interesting. Let me just stop here for a minute. I think often the way we think as, as, as human beings, even as Christ followers, is we look at our money like this, that, that my money belongs to me, right? I made it. It belongs to me. Now, and so as long as I can pay my bills, and as long maybe as a Christ follower as I tithe or whatever, as long as I do that, then I'm pretty much free to use my money however I want. And the Bible consistently paints a different picture, that when God blesses us financially, that one of the reasons he does that is to help those who can't take care of themselves, to help what the Bible calls the weak. So not the irresponsible. You don't help the irresponsible. You let them pay the price. But you you help the weak, those who cannot take care of themselves. And and so our our calling is not to live just in luxury and self-indulgence, that the more we make, the more we're blessed, the greater our responsibility to help the poor. And that's what these rich have not done. Not only have they made their money illicitly, but they have spent their money kind of very selfishly. And he says there's going to be a judgment for that. And so in verse, uh, the middle of verse uh, 5, he says, You have fattened yourselves up in the day of slaughter. So just like uh, cows that are being raised to, to butcher, you feed them really well. You feed them great corn or, you know, Kobe fed, whatever, so, so that you can, why? Because you're, you're fattening them up in order to butcher them. Now, they may think life is really good, 
you know, because they're eating the corn. Like, this is awesome. Man, I am a privileged cow. Look at me. Like, I get to eat like this. Look at my brothers over there, the milk cows. They're not eating like this. I am eating well. And yeah, but you don't understand why you're eating well. You're going to be slaughtered. And he says, so the rich, you're kind of, you're, you're eating well. You're living the life of luxury. But you don't realize that you're being fattened up for the day of slaughter, using that analogy. And then he says, you have condemned and murdered innocent men. So not only have you ripped off the poor by withholding wages, you've actually condemned them perhaps in courts of law. He talked about that back in chapter 2. And he said, you've actually murdered innocent men, whether through, through the legal system or through you know, just violence, who are not opposing you. And so, so it starts off with this, this kind of uh, almost prophetic Old Testament kind of judgment on the rich for, the, for their violence and their injustice against the poor, and you're going to get yours, all right? Now, of course, the reason he's, he's writing this is because there's many Christ followers for these people who are being violated and suffering injustice. And he says, I, I want you to know that God has not forgotten you, that he knows where you live, he knows the hard time you're going through, that he loves you. And then when Jesus comes back, he will turn all wrongs to right, and these people will pay the price for their, for their rebellion. Okay, and so, so he's encouraging them. So he says, so what you need to do then is, as Christ followers, in the midst of hard times, whatever your hard times are, like here in this congregation, whatever your hard times are, that you're going through right now, we need to always remember that this life is about the next life. So we need to focus on that and be patient for that. And so he's going to give us three analogies in the coming verses of patience. He's going to say we need to be like farmers who wait for the crops to come to harvest. We need to be like the prophets in the Old Testament who kind of did the right thing, even though they were persecuted, but in the end they were rewarded. We need to be like the patriarch Job in the Old Testament who went through such hard times, but in the end was taken care of. Okay, So here we go. So in verse 7, he says, So be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming, and see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. And so in Israel, you would have uh, the autumn rains, the fall rains, and the spring rains. Both were, you know, you're, you're living in a land without irrigation. And so both of the, those, uh, those rain seasons were very important for the crops. And there's nothing you could do to speed up your harvest. You just have to be patient and let nature take its course. He says, as Christ follows, it's the same way. There's certain things that have to happen before Jesus comes back. And so you just have to wait for the harvest that is coming and be patient. And then he says, so you, you too, verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is what? Near. Let's say it again. The Lord's coming is near. near. Now, does it seem real near to you? Right? This is one of the mysteries of the New Testament. That you know, as you read the New Testament, you get the impression that the early church really expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. Right? If you just read that, this is going to be a great example of that. And we're not really sure why they expected that because Jesus was very clear that no one knows the day or time. Like it's not May 21st, right? <laughs> like even if you buy a bunch of billboards, you can't encourage the hand of God, right? And so, and so I probably, it won't be October 21st too, right? Because even if it were going to be October 21st, God would change it up just to mess with that guy. He would just like... <laughs> I said, no, man, I'm not going to mention you. You're not getting it right, I'm telling you. Uh, so so uh, I'm pretty excited because my birthday is October 2nd, and so I'll get one more in, you know, if it is October 21st. But, uh, anyway, but, but, you know, throughout history, this is the way it's been. Uh, I've seen this over the course of my lifetime. 
I've seen it like, uh, uh, you know, that back in the 80s, I can remember some very famous Bible teachers, the guys on the radio and stuff like that, that you would, well, you know, you would know their names if I were to throw them out. That I can remember them saying that Jesus has to come back by 1988 because Israel became a nation in 1948. And the Bible says within one generation that Jesus will come back. And so if he doesn't come back by 1988, Jesus will have to apologize and he's not going to do that. So he will be back by 1988. And I remember being in the 80s, like, I don't think that's right. Like, I don't think that's right. And, you know, sure enough, we're, what, 30 years later? And so throughout church history, there have always been people that are like, we're going to read this sign, and we're going to read that sign, and we're going to get this all nailed down. And so far, everyone has been wrong, right? So Jesus was very clear that, that no one knows when his coming is going to be. And so, so we need to be living every day in light of that day, because we just don't really know. Now, it's interesting, this issue was an issue even in the early church because there was this expectation by many, if not most, that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. So at the end of the apostle Peter's life, he's writing the, the book of 2 Peter, the letter of 2 Peter, in about the year 67 AD, so about 37 years after the death of Christ, resurrection of Christ. And this is an issue. And there are people even in the first century saying, where is this promise of Jesus' return? And why hasn't he come back yet? And I don't think he's ever coming back. And Peter says, trust me, we saw him go. He said he's coming back. He's coming back. And he says, what you don't understand is that God operates outside of time. And so soon to him means different than soon to us. And so he makes this famous statement. He says, with, with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. In other words, he is above time. He is outside of time. Time is relative to him. And so he said, the reason Jesus has not come back yet is he is bringing more people into his kingdom, and he's delaying that so that more people get to be with him forever. All right, so, so even in the early church, they were, they were dealing with this, but the message of the New Testament as whether soon means today or soon means in a thousand years, as far as God's concerned, that, so, that we are to be living this day in light of that day. And so that's what he says in chapter 8. We need to live as if the Lord's coming is near, in verse 8. And so, so now he's going to begin to give us some specific guidelines of, okay, what does it look like to live in light of Jesus' coming? Like, how do we live as if Christ is coming back? How do we live today as if he's coming back? And it's interesting because the examples that he's going to give are really just examples that I think are targeting issues in their particular churches. For example, like if Jesus were talking to the church of Rocky Peak, he'd say, hey, to get ready for my return, he might name two or three things, right? And they're unique to our situation. Well, James is doing the same things. There were certain areas of these churches, they were not ready for Jesus to come back. And so he's targeting certain examples. And so in verse 9, he gives us the first one. In verse 9, he says, don't, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. Because the judge, speaking of Jesus, is standing at the door. And so we've seen this throughout the letter of James, that there is conflict going on in these churches, isn't there? Remember back in chapter 3, there was these people who want to be leaders, but they're driven by selfish ambition and ego. And remember, it says it was leading to disorder in the church. In chapter 4, he talks about these fights and quarrels that are happening in their congregation because they want things and they can't get it, and so they fight each other for it. 
And so for two chapters, he's been talking to us about this conflict. He says, hey, in your church, if you're going to be ready for Jesus to come back, you need to stop grumbling against each other. Uh, You need to work through your conflict. You need to learn how to get along, repair your relationships. And then he moves on, and he says, he gives us a second example of patience. Remember, first example was farmers. Here's the second one of prophets. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So think Old Testament, think Jeremiah, think Isaiah, think Ezekiel. Often men who paid the ultimate price of suffering, persecution, even death for being true to the Lord. He says, you need to focus on them as examples. At verse 11, as you know, we consider blessed those who persevere. That they're models to us. We look back through the heroes. Hey, as you wait for Jesus to come, uh, focus on models like these men and women who live for, for God in hard times. And then he mentions Job's example. Uh, you've heard of Job's perseverance and how, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about at the end of his story. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So, so are you with me here? Here's what he's saying. Like, I know you're going through hard times. You're getting ripped off in the fields. The rich are taking you to court and they're, they're winning. And it looks like God is nowhere in your life. I, I get this. There's even violence against the community. You may have known people have died. You're being persecuted for being a Christ follower. Life is hard. I get that. Hey, but as followers of Jesus, never forget that God is incredibly full of love and mercy. He loves you incredibly. And there will come a time when he will come back and he will destroy these evil people who are persecuting you. And, and he will take you into his kingdom. And, and like the prophets, like Job, like the farmer, you'll experience the harvest. So never question God's love for you. He's proven that love on the cross, okay? And so, and so then on top of it, because one more thing to do in the, in the meantime, in verse 12, he says, above all my brothers, do not swear. Now, he's not talking about using foul language, okay? Um, like t- number one thing in your life, don't say damn, you know, whatever. Um, uh, what, <laughs> there's some Christians who act as like that's true, right? The number one thing. Um, but the, yeah, the New Testament's clear that we are, our, our language is to be positive. You know, as believe we're not, we're not to use, you know, kind of inappropriate language. But that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, what he's talking about is actually taking an oath in order to prove that you're telling the truth. And so to say, hey, I swear by heaven, I swear on my mother's grave, I swear. That, in other words, he says, I, I want you to be people who are just known for their integrity. That what you say is true. Your yes be yes, your no be no. You, you, you don't have to, to like, go into these big, long oaths. You know, if you say you'll do something, you'll do it, that you're a person of integrity. And so he says, above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you'll be condemned, okay? And so, so here's this big teaching. Jesus is coming back. I know life is hard. Focus on the prize. Remember what you're about. God loves you in the midst of this pain. Focus on the prophets. Focus on, on, on the farmer. Uh, uh, focus on Job. Learn from their example. And in the meantime, live your life so you're ready for him to come back. Okay? So you got, got the idea? You got the flow? Now, here's what I want to do. In, in the time that we have today, I want to unpack this. I want to talk about four principles that flow out of this of how we prepare 
as Christ followers for the second coming of Jesus. Because we don't really know. It could come soon uh, in our calendar. It could, could come later. Uh, we could leave here today and be hit uh, by a truck and, and go to meet Jesus. You know, so, so the whole issue is how do we live our lives so that whether his coming is tomorrow or in a thousand, we're ready for him for, for the next life. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the second coming uh, how to prepare. And so let's just kind of run through these four principles. The, the, the first one is the big picture principle that James lays out, is that as Christ follows, we need to focus on the future. That, that as Christ follows, one, one of the things we have to get clear on is this life is not about this life. Now, now catch it. This life is incredibly important. But, but, but what's important about this life is we live this life in light of the next life, because this life is very short and the next life is very long and it's very real. And so, so this is hard for us because often as Christ followers, we, we have a very inadequate view of the next life. Like, like often, I don't know where we get this, get it from movies or something, but, but I think often when we think of the next life, we, we think of like what we think of heaven, I guess. And so we, we have images that come to mind like, like uh, harps, right? And like clouds, and like kind of being uh, dressed sort of in a diaper and worshiping forever, <laughs> right? With fat little bellies, you know? And, and so um, really not very exciting, right? Not very appealing. And, and so like we, we were told that we'll be really happy there. And so I think, well, if that's true, you'll have to give me a lobotomy, right? It's the only way that I'll be happy sitting on a cloud in a diaper with a heart, worshiping forever. Like I love worship, but forever is a long time. And I'm gonna need a break, right? I'm gonna need a break. And so, so I think often we have these very inadequate views of the next life, and so what happens is that everyone wants to go to heaven because it beats the alternative, right? But, but no one really wants to go today because our images are so anemic. And the reality is, is when you come to the Bible, well, the Bible talks about when Jesus comes back, there's gonna be a restoration of all things. The, the, the whole cosmos is gonna get a makeover. There is gonna be a new heavens and a new earth, and, and that we're gonna receive new bodies like his resurrection body, and it's gonna be amazing. And, and whatever is your favorite thing, that this life is, is not, it's just a pale reflection of the, the incredible experience we're gonna have there. And this is sort of the New Testament view, and this is why when Jesus died and rose again, this is why the resurrection is so important. The resurrection is a preview of coming attractions. In his body that's real, that's physical, that has his new capabilities, we are seeing phase one of the resurrection that will take place of the whole cosmos. And so when Jesus comes, this is one of the big picture truths that he teaches over and over. This life, the way I like to put it, it's like the lobby into eternity, right? It's all it is. This life is the preface to the novel that will be written that will, will never end. This life is the first step of the journey. So this life is incredibly important because what happens in this life determines what happens in that life, but, but that this life is just a pale shadow of what's coming. Are you with me in this? Now, now catch me, brother. This is core, core truth that we need to grasp hold of as believers. If we don't get this, we cannot live well. We cannot live well because until we are aware of the reality of the next life and how long it is and how real it is, we will never live this day for that day, and so we will never live well in this day. You see, and so Jesus is constantly uh, teaching on this, and so, so the uh, what what the Bible teaches is that 
Jesus is coming back physically, really, like he left, and that when he comes back, there's two things that are going to happen. One thing is judgment, right? There's going to be judgment on all those who have rebelled against his leadership as king of the universe and have not submitted and bowed the knee to Jesus. There's going to be a terrible judgment, and it's awesome, and it's frightening, right? And so we see that in James here. You know, he says, you rich, I mean, your flesh is going to be eaten like by fire. I mean, this is scary stuff, right? And then the other thing that's going to happen is there's going to be relief to us as Christ followers who have bowed the knee to Jesus, and we're going to enter into this amazing world that's going to coming. But catch this, the second coming is a both and. It is a horrible judgment on a world that's rebelled against his leadership, and it's a tremendous rescue for those who have surrendered to his leadership. Are you with me in this? Now, let me, let me catch that, that what this means is the gospel of Jesus is both good news and bad news. The gospel of Jesus, we always call it the good news. It is the good news. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus is that though we as a race have rebelled against God, we've basically flipped him off, we've spit in his face, we have committed the high treason against the king of kings, we have said, I will be my own God, and I will create gods in my own image, and I will do my own thing, and I don't want you, and literally kind of like, to hell with you, God. Although we have done that, and we need, should be destroyed, that this God who incredibly loves us, and he's come after us, and he said, no, I love you too much and I will come and I will die for you so I can rescue you from your rebellion. I will take the judgment that you deserve so that you can be restored and remade and returned to me to relationship and you can become not a slave but a son or a daughter of the living king and you can receive my spirit in you who will change you from the inside out and we can live together forever. That is the gospel right? That is the gospel. And man, that is good news because you know what that means? It means no matter what you've done, it means no matter how much you've rebelled or how great your violation of the king's orders, it doesn't matter that if you want a new start, you can have a new start and it can happen today and it can happen in a moment and you can be born again and there's a whole new, and that is the gospel. And that is amazing message that our relationship with God is not based on our performance, it's based on his performance on this incredible gift. And that is the good news, right? Okay, but, catch this, but the gospel is not just an invitation. The gospel is a command. And the command is, there is a new king in town. And you had better repent because if you don't and you die or he comes back, you will be destroyed. Because in this new kingdom that's coming, there will be no evil and there will be no rebellion, and there will be no injustice, and there will be no pollution, and there will be nothing destructive. And so if you are not willing to be changed, then you will be destroyed. Because in this new kingdom that's coming, there's no room for rebellion. Are are you with me? Now now let me show you this. I I wanna show you this. Uh, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter one. And this was kind of a late ad and so we're going to throw it up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. But, of course, if you do, you know, it's always better in your own Bible. So Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. So James is right. I mean, uh, Paul is writing to some new Christ followers who are suffering persecution for their faith, much like the believers James is writing to. 
And so he talks about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And I want you to see gospel is invitation, gospel is command. He says, verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. So there's people persecuting you. When that comes back, just like the rich in James, they will be they will be paid back. But he'll give relief to you who are troubled. To you being persecuted, you'll be relieved. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now catch this. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not, what's the next word? Obey the what? The gospel. Do you catch this? The gospel is not just an invitation. It is a command. It is something to be obeyed. And so the good news is when the king comes, when when Jesus came and announced his kingdom, the very first thing he said is repent and believe the gospel. You see? And so the the king is in town. He comes to us, and, and there's an invitation for amnesty, but there's also a command to repent and to come under his leadership. And Paul says, and and for those who refuse to obey the gospel, that there will be punishment. And then he goes on and talks about that punishment. There'll be there'll be verse nine, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction. We call that hell and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. And so this is what James is saying. Jesus is coming. The next life is real. There will be judgment for these rich who've rejected. There will be relief for us. And as Christ followers, then we learn to live in light of that day. We live this day in light of that day. And so this becomes a major teaching of Jesus. In fact, we talked about this at the, the opening story. Jesus coming to Jerusalem. His followers think he's about to unleash his power on Rome and the kingdom of God is gonna come in power. And Jesus says that is not what's gonna happen. In fact, in Luke 19, he, he, says, he, tells, he begins to tell them these stories because they think that's what's gonna happen. And so I put Luke 19 on your note sheet, Matthew 25, he begins to tell these short stories. And basically the stories, uh, some of you will remember the stories of, of the minas, the story of the 10 virgins, the story of the talents, the story of the sheep and goats, but they all have this one major point that, that he's going to be going away and that the kingdom of God's not going to come at once, that, that he has started the kingdom, and that during this, this age, this current age, that we have the choice to either submit to the king and become part of his kingdom or not, and it's our job to extend that kingdom as his movement, as a church, and, but that he will come back, and when he comes back, we will all, as Christ followers, be evaluated for how we helped pursue his movement while we were here. And so, as Christ followers, that we need to be living this day in light of that day so that when he comes back, then we'll be ready for him, okay? And so that in James, now what James is gonna do, he's gonna say, he's gonna give us three specific examples of what does it look like to live this day in light of that day. So that leads to number two. So he's gonna give us three, three examples. Number two, the first, first example is where to grow in generosity. Now, this may surprise you, um, uh, and, and remember what I said, that these examples are kind of random. They, they relate to their congregation. But think back to the passage in James. And the first thing he says is that the rich are going to be held accountable for the way they made their money and the way they spent their money. And so the message for us as Christ followers is we don't want to be like those rich he's talking about. That, that for us, that we don't want to make our money in illegitimate ways, and we don't want to spend our money in what he calls luxury and self-indulgence, 
that as Christ followers, we have a responsibility, and it's part of our core responsibility, to help the poor, okay? And to use our, our, our income that he gives us to help advance his movement and to help the poor. Now, it's interesting because this is something Jesus taught. We, we talked about this uh, uh, just a few minutes ago that Jesus often taught about the reality of the next life. But the, the question is, how did he teach about that? Like, like, how did he get that topic on the table? And if you study the teaching of the Jesus, one of the primary ways he talked about the next life and living for the next life was about our finances. And one of the things that Jesus taught is, as human beings, one of our greatest competitors of God in our life is money and stuff. Okay? That Jesus said one of the greatest competitors, one of the greatest idols of the human race, one of the greatest competitors to be number one God in our life is money and stuff. And so he said that if you're going to follow me, this is an area of you have to surrender to me, your finance. If you don't surrender that, you can't follow me. And so he, he said things like no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. There's a fundamental core decision that we have to make in our life. Does my stuff belong to me or does my stuff belong to God? And he says, as my followers, that I want you to learn to be generous and to invest in the next life by investing in things that really matter, like the advancement of my kingdom and, and loving the poor. And so, for example, there in your notes, see, here would be an example of it in Matthew 6. He taught this many times, but this is one of the clearest examples. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. And, of course, he's not saying you can't have a bank account. Proverbs talks a lot about that. We'll talk in our next series. He says, but don't, don't, don't make this your goal in life is to you know, amass this big net worth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, where it's vulnerable, but, but store up yourself treasures in heaven. Well, how do we do that? Well, by giving to his kingdom, by giving to the poor, okay? And he says, so where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, why, why is this money issue so important to Jesus? Why is money so important? He says, well, here's why. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be, okay? So, so Jesus knows this kind of basic truth about human nature. Whatever you invest your time and money and attention to is what will eventually capture your heart, okay? And, and so one of the things is that whatever we invest in financially, whatever, become, whatever we spend our money on has a way of capturing our affections. There's a connection between our heart and our wallets, Okay, so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to invest in things that are God's priorities, my kingdom, my righteousness, the poor. And, and as you do that, your heart will shift and you will begin to start realizing that this life is all about the next life. And as you, you invest in the next life, your heart will shift and you will change and it will have an impact on you. And so he goes on then and he says, no one can serve two masters for he will love the one, hate the other. So you'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So it's a fundamental decision. And so this is the, the principle that James is laying out. This is what these rich people don't understand, that they are live, their God is money, making it and then spending it luxuriously. And he says, as Christ's followers, you don't want to fall into that, that mistake. Now, it's interesting. Uh, last week, Lynn and I were at Yosemite for a couple days, and we haven't been in a while. Actually, I've been there many times recently, but, but Lynn hadn't been in a long time. And so we were back, and it's just incredible right now. If you want a, a, you know, to, to go somewhere just for a day trip or something, it's a long day trip. But, I mean, the waterfalls are, like, unbelievable right now. And, and so all the, the water packets. So, anyway, we're, we're in the valley for a couple days, and 
And so we are, uh, uh, you know, waiting, you, know, you travel in shuttles in the valley. And so uh, the shuttles were always behind. They're super slow. I don't know why. There's a lot of people up, uh, you know, from the valley. Maybe that's why. But, but we had a lot of time on our hands, kind of waiting for a shuttle. So Len would have a book. She's over there reading. And I, I of course, have my phone and have my Kindle on my phone. And so I'm doing some reading. So I, I check out. So I start reading, uh, rereading the classic Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And so I'm just really enjoying this because I haven't read it in a while. And it's just really good. And so if you've never read Mere Christianity, it's a great read. And, and in it, Lewis just kind of lays out, here's what core Christianity is. Here's what Christians believe. Here, here's how Christians believe they're supposed to live. Here's why. And one of the things he identifies, and I'll catch this, is one of the core things about being a Christ follower is that Jesus calls us to grow in our generosity for the poor. That this is not like extra credit. This is part of the core calling of a Christ follower. And he talks about, well, well how much should we give? And one of the things he says is, well, you know, the, the Bible doesn't tell us here's exactly how much you should give the poor, but he gives us some great guidelines. In this, in this, so I put this in your note sheet. He says, a charity or giving to the poor is an essential part of Christian morality, which is his way of saying it's a, it's a core part of following Jesus. He says, in the frightening parable of the sheep and the goats, which, by the way, is in Matthew 25. It's one of those stories Jesus told his last week of his life about the next, the next life. He says, it seems to be the point on which everything turns. He says, I, I do not believe uh, one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Uh, did you catch that? More than we can spare. I love what he says next. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours. So, you know, you live in an apartment, people in the next apartment, you live in a house, and the next, kind of the same, you're making the same amount. If, if our spending as Christ's followers on the poor is not different than someone else with the same income from the non-believer, he says, um, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There, there ought to be things we would like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Isn't that good? It's good. And I, I think that really flows from the teaching of Jesus, right? And, and so this is, this is part of our calling. What does it mean to be a, a follower of Jesus as a church here at Rocky Peak? What does it look like to unleash a movement? One of the things we have to recapture as a movement of Jesus is this love for the poor, and I think we've often missed that. And in fact, I believe this is why God has been putting in our heart this last year these initiatives for the poor, these water wells in Uganda, water wells in Ethiopia, farm animals for the poor at Christmas, uh, blankets for the homeless here in Los Angeles, food collection for uh, the poor here in Los Angeles, this missions thing we're doing for the poor in Mexico. What, what's happening? I believe God is shaping our hearts as a congregation to help put this more on our radar on a regular basis. This is part of following Jesus, our, our love for the poor and our personal lives in, as a church. Okay, and so, so the first thing he says is if you want to be ready for Christ to return, don't be like the rich in the way you spend your money. Be like Jesus in the way you spend your money, all right? Now, the second example he gives us deals with relationships, and it goes like this. The second thing we need to do is restore your relationships. So remember, kind of random examples he's giving that really that, that relate to tailor-made for these congregations. And so one of the things we've learned, and I mentioned this earlier, 
is that in these churches that James is writing to, there's major relational issues going on. Chapter 3, disorder. Chapter 4, fights and quarrels. And so he says, look, you know, you're not really ready for Jesus to come back if you're at odds with one another. And so in 5.9, or five, nine, there in, your, uh, in James, he says, don't grumble uh, against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So basically what he's saying, hey, his dad is coming home. Don't be fighting with your brother when he comes home. I think that, that as Christ followers, one of our top priorities in life is to learn how to get along with one another. Remember what Jesus said, God's top two priorities is we love God passionately with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love others compassionately as we love ourselves, as we, we love ourselves, love our neighbors, we love ourselves, right? Top two priorities. And so in the New Testament, you have all this teaching about how to do relationships a whole new way. What does it look like to love one another? That's why we create this essential that we're starting this week uh, on this topic of doing relationships a whole new way. Because often we come to Jesus, we're born again, we have a new love for God, but we still do our relationships in old way, especially in the area of conflict. So when we have conflict with one another, what do we do? We just grumble against each other, we slander one another, we gossip about one another, we talk to our friends about this person over here and what a loser they are and can't believe that. And so and we, in the meanwhile, we think we're following Jesus while we're grumbling against one another. And so James says, hey, if you have broken relationships in your life, you're really not ready for Jesus to come back. Okay? Now let me say this. Real important. Don't miss this. In Romans chapter 12, this verse is on your note sheet. Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So there's some people that you can't be at peace with. The relationship is broken, and you go back and say, I'd love to make this right. Can we work this out? And they say, I don't want to talk with you about that. They want the war to continue. And so in those situations, there's nothing more that you can do than to let them know you want to do this, you're willing to do this. And and so that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is as much as it depends on us, it's important our relationships are right. So like, like here at Rocky Peak, do you have people here in the church that you're at odds with? you've had a falling out with, and you've never really tried to restore that relationship. There's people maybe in a life group or people in a ministry that you work with that somehow there was an offense, somehow there was a broken relationship, and, and that you've just let, and you've just kind of gone on and grumbled about that, right? You're not forgiven, you grumbled. And so, so James says, if, if you have broken relationships, especially in the body of Christ, you're not ready for Jesus to come back. You, you need to make those things right. And it's interesting how strongly Jesus felt about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he gives this example. And to understand this example, you need to understand the nation of Israel. Uh, you know, in the nation of Israel, there's only one temple. There's many synagogues, but only one temple. The temple is where you come to offer your sacrifice. It's the only place you can offer your sacrifice. And so Jesus says, he gives this example. He says, let's say that you've, you, it's one of the high holy days. You've traveled to Jerusalem, you're in line, you've got your sacrifice, your offering, you're ready, you've taken it to the altar, and it's your turn, and you've, you've, you've paid the money, and you're all ready to go, and all of a sudden, like God brings to your mind, you have a broken relationship with Joe back at home, okay? And, and so, he says, what you need to do is you need to leave your offering there, don't try to be right with God, leave your offering there, and get out of line, and go find Joe. Now, remember how the first hearers would have heard this. Like, wait a second, I'm from Nazareth. 
You know, like I'm 50 miles from Jerusalem. I'm from Galilee. I'm from Capernaum. I'm from 80 miles from Jerusalem. He said, yeah, I know. Just leave it there. Go make it right if you can. And then come back and worship God. So, so what's he doing? He's using an extreme example, of, as he often does in his teaching, to make a point. And here's the point. It's impossible to be right with God if we're wrong with one another. You see? And, and so James says, hey, if you've got broken relationships that you haven't tried to restore, you're really not ready for Jesus to come back. The judge is standing at the door. You stop your grumbling. And then there's one more thing that James, uh, one more example he gives us for number four. He says, insist on integrity. And he's talking about integrity in our own lives, not other lives, but insist on integrity in your life. In other words, this flows out of his teaching about oaths. If you look at 5.12, he says, Above all, brothers, do not swear by heaven or earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no by no, or you'll be condemned. And of course, this teaching about oath flows directly from Jesus' teaching on oath in the Sermon on the Mount. And I put that there on your note sheet. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, I tell you, do not swear at all. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one, from Satan. Uh, And then in Matthew 23, the next verse, he's talking to religious leaders. He says, woe to you blind guides. If anyone swears by the temple, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Now, what's what's he saying? Well, in Jesus' day, in James' day, remember they're basically the same day, there was a problem in Israel with integrity. And so they had developed this uh, extreme oath system where in order to get someone to believe you that you were telling the truth on an important matter or to get them to trust you that you would keep a commitment you were making, you basically, the, the kind of the normal of the culture is you take an oath. I swear by heaven that I will do this or I swear by the temple that, that this is the truth, okay? And so, but the thing was, they had, de- they had developed this elaborate system uh, of loopholes in their, their oaths. So, so remember when you were a kid, for example, and you, you, you'd make a promise, but you'd hold your fingers <laughs> behind your back, and it didn't count, right? You know, or, or you remember, like, if you'd, like, I stick a needle in my eye, you know, but there's certain little things you'd throw in there, it would invalidate the whole, no, no, I didn't say that. I missed that word. You know, so this is what they had done. So they had this elaborate system where they, they'd say to someone, for example, I swear to you by the temple in Jerusalem. And, and, but if they were really smart, they'd know, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's like, that one doesn't really count because I have to swear by the gold in the temple. And they, they had this elaborate system. And so Jesus says, enough of that. As my followers, I want you to be men and women of integrity. Your yes is a Yes. Your no is a no. If you say you'll do something, you'll do something. You don't need a contract, right? Your word is your bond. You tell the truth. Your people that if you say it, it's true. If you say it's not true, it's not true. Integrity is incredibly important for a Christ follower, right? And so, so, that, so that's what James is saying here. Like, as you wait for Jesus to return, live a life of integrity. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to look back over this list. Look at these four items we've talked about. There's the first one, right, uh, uh, kind of, you know, develop this future focus, right? And then, then he talks about keep your, uh, be, be growing your generosity. And then he talks about relationships, keep your relationships right. And then he talks about be a person of integrity. Now, here's what I want you to catch about that. I want you to catch that there is nothing extraordinary about any one 
of these commands, is there? He says, in order to, be, in order to get ready for Jesus to come, be generous, uh, uh, keep your relationships right, uh, be a person in tech. Have you noticed that there's nothing special there? This is just the core calling of a Christ follower, right? He could have given other examples. He could have talked about sexual purity. He, he could have talked about, uh, kind of, you know, other, I mean, there's other things he could have talked about, but this is just core teaching of the New Testament, right? There's nothing special here. And here's what I want you to catch. That often we think, if I knew Jesus was coming back soon, I would have to do something extraordinary to get ready. Right? I would have to like sell everything I have and give to the poor. I, I would have to uh, leave my, quit my job and go to Africa. Uh, I would have to you know, just uh, uh, kind of work every day at the soup kitchen. Right? That we think that in order to be ready, like I remember when I was growing up as a kid, sometimes pastors would say this. They'd say, would you be doing that if Jesus were coming back? Of course, the right answer was, oh no, I'd feel like a moron, right? That was the right answer. It was like, would you, would you do that? If, and we weren't just talking about sin, they're talking about life. Just, would you do that if Jesus were coming back? And here's what I want you to catch, is that being ready for Jesus to return is nothing extraordinary. It's just living the life of a Christ follower, you see? So, so for example, here at Rocky Peak, our goal, our vision is to unleash a movement of what we call passionate Christ followers. How do we define that? Well, it's by pursuing God. Our number one priority is to know and love and please him. It's by loving others the way he's loved us. It's by serving sacrificially our time, our gifts, our resources. It's by sharing Christ, the, the good news about Jesus and his his, his gospel, right? It's just the normal stuff, right? And here's what I think what James, the lesson here for us is that getting ready for Jesus' return is nothing extraordinary. It is just the ordinary. It's living the life of a Christ follower. And, and if we will simply live the life of a Christ follower, then when he comes back, whether it's tomorrow or whether you go to be with Jesus through an accident or disease, it's unexpected, or, or whether he comes back in a thousand years, whenever he comes, Whenever you go to be with them, you will be ready. Would you, would you just bow your heads with me? We're going to enter into a time of prayer right now and some reflection. The band's going to come out. And would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And as we get ready for this, I want to ask you a couple questions. I, I, I want to I ask you the first question is, has the future captured your affections? You know, as a Christ follower, do you understand this, that this life is all about the next life? And has it captured your affections? As the reality of the next life is it's the motive behind your life today. And do you understand how amazing that day will be and what it will be like to be with him and what it will be like to be part of that new creation, that new cosmos? As our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, maybe you're here today and you've always known this gospel of Jesus that he offers you this forgiveness and this whole new life, but you've never really understood that it's also a command. And you've been putting it off because though it's an incredible invitation, you're not ready to leave your life of rebellion. And today you realize it's, it's also a command and you need to give your life to Christ. For all of us here today, James is asking us, are you living in light of his coming? Um, are you being generous with your finances? Are, you, are your relationships right? Are, 
Are you living a life of integrity? Of course, he could have gone on. He could have asked about moral purity. He could have asked about other relational issues. Or he could have talked about service and, and are we using our gifts for his kingdom. Jesus often talked about that. He could have asked many other questions. But are you living this, this life? Are you ready for Jesus to come back whenever he comes back? Are you living the life of a Christ follower? And what we're going to do now is, is that during this first song, Autumn's going to be singing for us. We're just going to be reflecting on the amazing promise of this next life. During this song, we'll also be taking the offering. We're going to turn the lights down. I just want you to sit back, and I want you to think about what's coming and think about these questions that James has asked us. And then after that, we'll go into some worship together as we we finish our, our, our time with the song of worship. So, Lord, we come to you now. And we pray that you would make the next life incredibly real to us so we could live this life in light of that. So when we get there, God, that we will not be ashamed, but that we'll be excited and run to you, excited for this future that you have. We pray if there's any area of our life that's out of line with that, that you would speak to us now and call us to a place of deep repentance, that we'd be ready to live this day for that day. And we pray, Lord, that if we've never given our lives to you, that today we'd give them to you for the very first time. We'd ask you to come in and to forgive us of our rebellion and to to give us that gift of amnesty and the gift of your spirit, the whole new life. We pray you'd hear us now as we come before you. Amen. Father, that's the truth that we celebrate today, that through the cross of Christ, that we have been made right, that we have been brought into relationship as sons and daughters of the King. And we look forward to that day where we will see you face to face and we will enter into that next life where there is no suffering and there is no pain. And, And God, we just pray that during this dark age that we live in now, it's an age of injustice, it's an age of sickness, it's an age of pain, God, we pray that you would teach us as your followers to focus on the future, that we would be like the farmer who is patient waiting for the harvest, that we would be like the prophets who have gone before and showed us how to suffer well, that we would be like Job and that we would endure to the end of this story and that we'd embrace this truth that we've learned today, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. God, I I just pray for those of us here right now in this church that are undergoing times of suffering right now. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's physical, maybe it's relational, but but they're in a place of great pain right now. I pray that you'd help them to lift their eyes and set their hope fully on the grace to be revealed when you come back. I pray for all of us, God, that we'd be living in the light of this next life and that we'd be living each day men and women of generosity, men and women of right relationship, men and women of great patience, God, men and women of integrity, living in the light of your coming. And so we pray that you would grace us as your church to live life well, and you would give us a fresh glimpse of the reality of the next life, that we could live this life in light of that next life. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Boy, some great truth that we've been embracing this morning, and I just challenge you with that, you know, that we will be there together, and, and we will know one another, and as Christ's followers, we, we will be there, and we will remember this day, and we'll remember the other days here at Rocky Peak. We've talked about that day, 
And so that may that be our challenge to live this day for that day. Now, as we go, a couple things. First of all, I, I, I try to mention this every week, but I often forget. Just that after the service, we always have a ministry called the Prayer Connection. It's back to my far left. The back is a light back there. Sign in. One of our pastors and our elders, uh, prayer team are back there. If you'd like extra prayer, it's always available after service. I want to make sure that you always know that. Uh, second, don't forget, next week, the end of this series, you won't want to miss it. Just a great passage on what does it mean to be part of the movement of Jesus in terms of this new community that God is shaping a community that loves one another, that prays for one another, that confesses sins to one another, that prays for each other's healing, that we walk through life together as he wraps up this, this passage. Until then, may the Lord be with you, and may you live a life of generosity. May you live a life of integrity. May you live a life of right relationships, living in the light of his return every day, so that whether he comes back tomorrow, in 10 years, 1,000 years, or whether you go to meet him before he comes back, that when he comes, you will be ready, that you'll have no regrets if you've lived this life for the next life. God bless you. Love you guys. See you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.